2: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating.
3: There's something like between twice and ten times as many bacterial cells in us as there are human cells in us. So they, they are us and we are them. If you take all the bacteria together, they have a hundred to a thousand fold different kinds of abilities to do things than we ourselves do.
2: That's Dr. Joe Handelsman who studies microbes at the University of Wisconsin. Not only the vast array of microbes that live in us and on us, but also the even greater number that lurk in the soil beneath our feet. I talked with Joe about why both the microbes within and below us are so important to our survival. But we began our conversation, which took place last fall, talking about the weather, which these days often leads to talk that's far from small. Joe, I'm so glad to be talking to you today. I'm especially glad because you're in Wisconsin and I'm in New York, and you had to drive through a snowstorm to get to the studio. What was what, what's happening there?
3: I wish I knew what was happening. Uh, We have had two snowstorms already in Madison, Wisconsin, and and it's only
2: October. This isn't even Thanksgiving yet.
3: No, this is Halloween, and we still <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> we still have beautiful orange and red and green leaves on trees, and we have snow sticking to them. There wasn't that much of it. It was only about four or five inches, which is nothing for Madison, but uh, it was just so slippery that people were sliding off the roads uh, <laughs> at every turn. So what should have been about a 25 minute drive was an hour and a half. So uh, it was uh, it was a it was a white knuckle trip, but that's climate change for us, right?
2: Is this really an example? Can we cite this, for instance, as an example of climate, the climate crisis, I call it? Uh, because for a long time, scientists were reluctant to pin, the moniker climate change on any individual event because it, it, it's weather rather than climate in most cases. But do you think you can call something like what you went through this morning the effect of climate change?
3: No, I probably can't. Uh, we still, I think, are, are hesitant to pin any individual weather event on climate change. But when you have these patterns of Uh, storms coming at a greater intensity over and over and over or at a different time of year, as was the case uh, today and last week when we had snowstorms, then the pattern becomes climate change. And I think one of the topics we'll talk about today is the increase in intensity of, of rainstorms in the Midwest. Um, over the last 60 or so years. And that is clearly a more than a weather trend. That's, that's a climate trend.
2: Something that really interests me a lot is, you know, they talk about the butterfly effect where some little action by a little actor can have eventually a huge effect. And I think a great example of that is your work in soil and how we all depend on soil to eat to survive, and the the condition of soil is affected by this little guy, the bacterium, and not only soil, but everything else in our lives. Is it only lately that we've begun to understand the importance of bacteria in our lives?
3: I think it's certainly become an intensified impression over the last fifteen or so years because we've begun to study not only bacteria in the environment and bacteria as causes of disease, but bacteria as causes of health. And I think that's been one of the most startling discoveries that has really caught the public's attention.
2: The more I read about the microbiome, the more in awe I am of them, because we not only live because of them, we are them to a great extent. How, what, what's the current estimate of the number of bacteria that are in and on the human body?
3: There's something like between twice and ten times as many bacterial cells in us as there are human cells in us. So they they are us, and we are them. Um, they outnumber our cells um, quite dramatically. And they also have tremendously more genetic capacity. And that's the part that I find the most fascinating. What does is that mean?
2: That, what do you mean by well, that?
3: Well, if you think of the complexity and the number of different genes in the human genome, if you take all the bacteria together, they exceed our own genetic complexity or capacity by somewhere between 100 and 1,000-fold. 1, so that means that they have 100 to 1,000-fold 1, different more different kinds of pathways and functions and abilities to do things than we ourselves do
2: with these little guys of not 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 any one individual right it's the, the collection of them
3: it's the collection it's the entire community put together And that's really what has come out in, I I think, the last 15 or so years is this tremendous biochemical and genetic capacity of these organisms. And that's why they have the ability to shape so many different diseases. There have been some pretty remarkable experiments in mice and the number of different characteristics of the mice that can be changed with the microbiome.
2: Like, Like what? What's an example of that?
3: The truly groundbreaking experiment was when they transferred uh, bacteria from the guts of lean and obese people into germ free mice. And the mice became either lean or obese, uh, depending upon which bacteria they received. And of course, that was an entire community of organisms, hundreds of different species. But there are certainly patterns of types of bacteria in the obese condition in many people. And it's not 100%. It's certainly not the only cause, but it is one of the contributing factors, we think. Um, There's some evidence now. Uh, from here at the University of Wisconsin on uh, propensity for Alzheimer's disease and the microbiome. there are particular metabolites or chemicals that some bacteria produce that seems to make people more um, susceptible to Alzheimer's, or are more these, these chemicals are elevated in people who have Alzheimer's. So how do uh, they but- get
2: up to the brain from the gut?
3: Oh, that's one of the great questions. That's something that that my lab is really interested in. And my hypothesis is that it's many different ways, that sometimes the chemical itself will travel, but I would bet that more often it's the chemical stimulating the vagus nerve, which is the big nerve that connects the brain and the gut, and that it's that process, and then it's just an electrical impulse from there.
2: You know, I've read a little bit about this. There's a guy in uh, the Netherlands called uh, Jans you, you probably are aware of him. Mm-hmm. And he seems to have done some early work on how the microbiome and, and the gut affects the vagus nerve in some way and cause Parkinson's, or at least have an effect on Parkinson's, on the dopamine production in the brain. I'm very interested in that because I have Parkinson's. So cure, cure my Parkinson's for me in the next 30 seconds.
3: Well, I would love to. In fact, I've been thinking about it ever since I heard that you had Parkinson's, and I've been reading everything I can. And just last night, I read an article on Parkinson's and the microbiome. And the picture they painted in that article was much more complex, that they, they couldn't develop as strong a statistical connection between the composition of the microbiome and the propensity for um, Parkinson's. But I don't think it's going to be that long before we can begin to manipulate the microbiome to achieve particular signals. And I think Parkinson's is a great example. Um, I'm, I'm working with a, a group here. Uh, at Madison on exactly that question, what happens with the microbiome as Parkinson's progresses or with people who have it or don't have it or have a precondition uh, versus the out- full-blown disease. So I hope to have an answer, not in the next 30 seconds, but hopefully maybe <laughs> the next oh, 30 years. I'm sorry, years. your time is up. <laughs> All right. Well, well, we'll try to get you an answer soon.
2: The interesting thing is that what we've just been talking about is what we're used to hearing about microbes is that they cause us trouble. But I know you have the opposite view in a way. They do some of them do cause us trouble, but don't the vast majority of them help us?
3: Absolutely. There are only about 80 species that we know of that are actual full-blown pathogens. But there are thousands and thousands of species that benefit us in their environmental effects, uh, in the soil, in the atmosphere, and in our own bodies. And in just about every process that we run on Earth or in our own health, uh, the microbes play a role. And, And that spans from the kinds of neurological disease or health that we've been talking about, from depression to Parkinson's. Uh, all the way to climate change. And the microbes were here long before we were, billions of years before we were. And they shaped the Earth that we know today. And in fact, the biggest event in the Earth's history was the big oxygenation event, as we like to call it. When
2: did that happen and how did it happen?
3: Well, about 3.8 to 3.5 billion years ago, bacteria called cyanobacteria evolved that began to produce oxygen using uh, the power of the sun. And eventually the oxygen began to build up from the oceans became saturated with oxygen and then it began to be released from the oceans into the atmosphere. So now we had an oxygenated atmosphere so we could carry on the aerobic respiration that we know of today in many, many organisms, including us. But then an even uh, just as important step was that as oxygen molecules began to be um, split by the UV light from the sun, you would get uh, single oxygen atoms. And when a single oxygen atom could react with an O2 molecule, which is the kind of oxygen we breathe, they would form O3. Well, that's ozone. And the ozone began to accumulate in the stratosphere to protect the the surface of the Earth from some of the UV radiation that the sun emits that made life on land impossible before that. And so it was the ozone layer that allowed life to migrate from the oceans onto land.
2: And those cyanobacteria, I've heard you say, are still hugely important in protecting us against the climate crisis.
3: Oh, absolutely, because they fix carbon. They they represent um, about half of um, the carbon fixation on Earth. And, and, of course, trees and plants are very important, but the oceans are just as important, and it's the photosynthetic bacteria that fix carbon. They take carbon out of the air, out of uh, the form of carbon dioxide, and turn it into uh, food for themselves.
2: Half of all the carbon that's soaked up is done by these bacteria?
3: Yes. Wow. Half of photosynthesis is in the oceans.
2: So is there a danger if we screw around with the ocean too much, we're going to kill that capability too?
3: Oh, sure. We can mess up anything. <laughs>
2: <laughs> How much a role does bacteria play in soil? When, when, when I think of soil, I think of it as something you can grow something in. So, uh, how, how dependent are we on bacteria uh, to to grow stuff that we can eat and build houses with?
3: We're completely dependent. So soil is a mixture of pulverized rock that has been weathered by the elements and by bacteria over uh, a very, very long time millennia. And then it becomes colonized by bacteria and plants. And then eventually animals and as those organisms grow and die, the bacteria decompose what's left of them and that releases carbon and all sorts of other nutrients into the soil and that's what makes what we call the organic component of the soil that gives it its rich black color if you're in Wisconsin, the black color, Uh, not all soils are black of course. Um, and, and that's what gives it its life-giving properties. And that's why we can grow plants in it is that it's this dynamic, rich ecosystem. There are, there are more organisms in soil than any other ecosystem we know. It's the most biologically diverse environment.
2: Do we have an estimate, by the way, of how many species exist of, of microorganisms?
3: Well, my lab did a, an estimate a number of years ago where in, for the soil, and we ended up with a range of between 4,000 species and 40,000 species per gram of soil, which is like a small teaspoonful. And that was as close as we could get. Um, we know that there are, of course, many, many more thousands of species than that, some people say there are a few million species of bacteria, but I think we're so far from describing all of bacterial life that it's kind of hard to know.
2: So we, we, we mentioned how messing around with the ocean can really affect the atmosphere. What should we know about soil?
3: The soil is really the source of uh, 96% of our food and a lot of um, the balance of life on Earth. So I think it's one of the most unappreciated aspects of our planet, but it's ubiquitous on land, of course. It's all around us. We use it for building, for making pottery, for building roads, and, of course, for growing most of our food. And the bacteria are critical for the soil, as are plants. And a cycle that occurs between the plants and the bacteria gives soil its beauty and its structure and its health. As the plants grow, they fix carbon from the atmosphere through photosynthesis. And they put almost half of their carbon into their roots, which is really interesting because you'd think that they would they would build themselves above ground with their carbon. But in fact, most plants shuttle a lot of their carbon to their roots, and then about a third of that ends up outside the roots.
2: And what if what effect does that have? Are they feeding the bacteria what are they? Exactly. Doing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, plants was,
3: are not, they're not wasteful. That's was a not wild guess
2: their, on my part.
3: <laughs> that's a great guess because that's who's living around them on their roots. And they they exude all this carbon into uh, the area around them. roots, the bacteria eat it. And one of the things that bacteria produce among the many, many uh, uh, ways that they will use that carbon is they produce these long, sticky strands of polysaccharides that stick soil particles together. And so one of uh, the things that gives soil its big structure, you know, how you can get kind of a clod of soil and it sticks together, that's because of the bacterial polysaccharides. And so one of the things that for example, my lab is interested in, is how do we increase that process and perhaps encourage the plants to excrete more carbon into the, the the area around their roots and then encourage the bacteria to produce more polysaccharide to give soil more strength and resilience.
2: Well, what's the effect of that stickiness of the soil? Why is that a good thing?
3: Well, part of it is that it gives soil the architecture that it needs to have for good growth, that if you imagine soil uh, all as little particles of sand, it can get packed down really hard, and it's not as healthy for for um, plants. But if you imagine those big clods, there are a lot of spaces for movement of air and water through the soil, hmm. and it's it's better for plant growth. But even more importantly... When we get a hard rain, and as I was saying when we were talking about climate change before, one of the trends we've seen is a a sharp increase in the very heavy precipitation events uh, in the Midwest in particular um, over the last 50 years. And those very hard rains will break up soil um, particles and wash them away.
2: When I come back with Joe Handelsman after this short break, Joe explains to me the ironic and scary fact that the very farming methods we practice practiced for thousands of years are putting our ability to feed ourselves in danger.
0: When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions.
1: Can we even afford to buy a house right now?
2: This is clear and vivid. And now back to my conversation with Dr. Joe Handelsman. So Joe, are we are we doing things to the soil around the world that's putting us in danger?
3: We're causing the soil to erode quite rapidly. The U- US Department of Agriculture <laughs> Uh, It takes uh, soil erosion data every few years, and they publish the overall rates. And the last report they had reported that soil was eroding, uh, on average, across the United States, uh, about 3.7 to 4 tons per acre per year, which doesn't mean much to most people. But when you think that soil can be produced at, at most a half a ton per acre per year, And probably in many soils, much less than that.
2: When you say it can be produced, you mean if you just leave it alone and let nature take its course?
3: Exactly. Exactly. Just, you know, the, the natural soil genesis process, it takes hundreds of years to make just one, you know, half an inch of soil. And so if we're eroding at 10 and in some areas even 100 times faster than the soil is be, pr- being produced, that's just not sustainable by any measure. But the story gets worse than that because uh, these these very hard rainstorms are increasing the rate of erosion. And so that, that roughly 4 tons per acre per year probably is an underestimate in the years to come. Um, because we've seen a steady rise. Um, it's been uh, essentially a nonstop increase in hard rains in the Midwest over the last 50 years. Oh, and so, so the, the
2: increased rain that may be a function of climate change is eroding the soil faster, so so that there's a like a vicious cycle happening.
3: That's right, because the, we erode the soil— And that actually contributes in some ways to climate change because carbon can be released as as a gas from eroded soil, so it may end up increasing climate change. And then if climate change is contributing to these hard rainstorms, then more soil erodes. And because we've been plowing our soils for so long, and most farmers, about two-thirds of farmers, still use the standard old-fashioned plow, Uh, That breaks up these soil particles. And that's the most destructive thing we do. It's one of the things that I disagree with Thomas Jefferson on. He said once that the greatest invention in human history was the moldboard plow. And I would say that that has been the cause of more uh, civilizations to self-destruct. Than probably any implement that that has ever been invented. So he was wrong about that and a few other things. What, what,
2: what a <laughs> wonderful example of being smart and not seeing unintended consequences.
3: Exactly. <laughs> and if you know if you don't look at the history of soil, it's hard to see on uh, on a human normal human life scale. But now it's becoming more and more evident because there are more and more areas in the United States that just don't have any more soil. Really? You, wow. Yeah, you can, you can fly over Iowa, for example, and see, you know, that nice dark brown land after it's been plowed, except there are these white spots sticking through, these sort of light tan spots, and those are areas where they're down to the subsoil or bedrock. There's, there's just no topsoil. And I heard recently that 25% of Iowa has lost its topsoil, and that's one of the most productive uh, agricultural states in the country. And And the
2: more you lose, it sounds like the more you lose, the more you're on a speeding train going even faster to lose more.
3: Yeah, I think that's true because you have fewer plants and less biological activity to hold the rest of the soil. The amazing thing about soil loss is that we have this long history, thousands of years, of using plowing and other bad agricultural techniques that destroy the soil and cause it to wash away, and there are civilizations throughout history that have collapsed because of this, from Easter Island to, there's now evidence that perhaps the Roman Empire was partly destroyed by the loss of soil, and you can imagine why. If if soil isn't there, then crops can't be grown and the civilization is dramatically weakened. Uh, But despite that, we still continue with the farming methods that destroy uh, soil structure. And we know very well what methods would stop that process. What what would
2: be an example of a method of farming that doesn't destroy soil?
3: There are three big ones. And one is no-till farming, where instead of plowing and putting the seeds in furrows, you actually drill the seeds into last year's stubble. And the beauty of that is that the plants from last year still have decaying roots and a lot of organic matter or plant material that is um, decomposing. And that material stays in place, gives the soil its structure, and instead of turning it over and breaking up the clods and exposing all of all of the uh, under soil to the atmosphere, we're keeping it in place. And so no-till agriculture was uh, first introduced in the 1970s, and it's used in other countries, in fact, far more extensively than in the United States. I think Brazil has no-till agriculture on between two-thirds and three-quarters of their land, and the United States is still under 30% of our land in no-till. So that would be the first thing, is to move to no-till agriculture. The second is to use cover crops. And those are crops that we plant after harvesting the main crop, but that stay in place over the winter. And, it, you know, if you fly over the Midwest, you can see for about almost eight months a year, just bare soil, unless there's snow cover like today. <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> so why, why, that seems like an, an easy thing to do. Is it costly to, to plant? Uh, so what do you plant? What kind of a plant do you put there? For the winter. There
3: are a lot of different ones you can use. Grains, uh, you can you can use what's called green manures, which are plants that you just plow under in the spring, and they actually make the soil healthier and suppress disease. Um, there are also, for example, there's a kind of wheat that you can plant in the fall and then harvest in the spring. Hmm. Um, but a lot of it depends on the climate and the you know the type of agriculture that a farmer is part of. Uh, but it can be expense that it's more expensive to plant the crop if it's not going to be harvested, and a lot of cover crops are there just to enrich the soil and to protect the soil.
2: And what's the third? Do you, do you have a third way too?
3: Yeah, and then the third one is intercropping, and that one has is is fascinating to me because of how little you have to do to get enormous impact. And there were these studies that showed with this strip cropping, they they take about 10% out of, of their corn out of production and replace it with these deep-rooted prairie plants, which are the plants that first generated the great soils of the Midwest. And they, instead of putting all their energy into a, a corn ear, they put their energy into their roots because they're perennials. They want to live till next year, so they have to store up energy in their roots. And the result is that they build the soil. They're just wonderfully enriching to soil. And in this one study, they found that just 10% of the corn replaced by these prairie plants in little strips throughout the cornfield would reduce erosion by 95%.
2: Wow. So you've got three ways to help the problem, and the whole world has to get interested in this. This sounds like a huge communication problem.
3: I agree. I think we just need to get people on board. I think it's really hard for farmers to do this on their own because these techniques will always take capital to do to transfer to right any kind of change is going to cost some sort of money and farmers have such small margins and they're usually working just at the edge so it's really hard for the individual farmer to make those changes and so my own belief is we need to get consumers on board to say this is the kind of food we want we want food that has been produced with soil safe methods
2: when you were a science advisor to President Obama, were you working on this very problem?
3: I was. And um, one of my regrets was that I was never able to get a memo to the president about um, this issue. But I did work on it um, with the uh, the food retail community, with farm groups, um, with soil and, and conservation groups, uh, and other parts of government and it's a tough, very naughty problem.
2: So, how do we do it?
3: Again, through consumers. I think we need, just like we did with recycling, like we did with uh, changing smoking habits. When people become aware of a problem, they change their behaviors. And um, we, you know, we brought in fair trade coffee, for example, and people are willing to pay a small premium to know that their coffee was produced under fair trade. Um, uh, conditions. And I, I think that the same thing could be uh, affected if people knew about how important our soil is and how much at risk it is. I go out and talk to public groups. I'm writing a, a book for lay people about uh, soil that I hope will enlighten people about how precious and important the soil is and how much at risk it is.
2: I, I heard you tell that wonderful story about Mark Twain in 1907, realizing the importance of the benefits of bacteria when for so long we've only thought of, and continued even after Mark Twain wrote about it, uh, we've only thought of bacteria as being harmful and causing disease. What, what, What do you suppose made Mark Twain glom onto that idea when he was a lone voice in the desert?
3: Well, it was a very specific thing, and it's even in the novel that he wrote uh, called My 3,000 Years with the Microbes, uh, which is an unpublished uh, novel that he wrote from the perspective of the microbes. And he introduces it with the lectures that he heard from Professor Kahn, C-O-N-N. Uh, who was the first bacteriologist in Connecticut and spoke about soils and, and microbes in their beneficial uh, forms and the microbes inside of, of people. And Mark Twain heard his lectures and apparently that's all it took was a series of lectures that got him so excited about these rich communities of microbes that he wanted to write about them from their own perspective.
2: It's so great that his creative imagination was spurred by one lecture and it it's not so great that it wasn't it wasn't published it didn't get people thinking about the beneficial aspects of bacteria early enough I mean we went what do we go almost a century before people got really hip to the idea that we need these little guys we are we are these little guys
3: that's right I mean I I think microbiologists would have would have said yeah we we always knew that to some degree uh, and and I think we just need more uh, more reaching out to the public about the power of the microbes
2: what i'm going to ask you is from left field but i want to know what your what your professional knowledge is about this i've read that the wonderful smell after a rain that's so it's so it's a, such a refreshing smell to me and i think to most of us that that's really bacteria rising in the air not only parts of bacteria but the um excremental <laughs> diversions of the bacteria. Is, is what do you know about that?
3: Well that's absolutely true. A group of bacteria called the streptomyces produce a compound that has that very characteristic smell. And in fact, when you grow the bacterium in the lab, people will turn their heads and say, I smell spring because ah. it's so evocative, and it turns out to be largely due to this one chemical which can be volatilized, and after a rain, it goes off into the air, and that's what we smell. So, yeah, I mean, there, if there's something good in the world, it's usually because of bacteria. You know, that, that's the, the basic line that I use that I think is a really good thing to live by, that if, if there's something we love, it probably is produced by bacteria.
2: Well, I'm sure glad for this conversation today I found it fascinating, and I want to hear more from you and i and you you speak with real clarity about this, and you're you're able to come up with examples and stories which help the rest of us. It sticks in our mind. You say you're working on a book about this?
3: I am uh, it's called a World without Soil."
2: Oh. God. It sounds scary. <laughs> <laughs> we have to go, but before we go, we always ask our guests seven quick questions that are generally related to to communicating. Are you are you game for it? They're not they're, oh, un- sure. <laughs> they're not hard. They're not embarrassing. The first one is what do you wish you really understood?
3: I wish I understood microbial communities fully and I I think we'll, I hope we'll have a better understanding of them in my lifetime, but we don't truly understand the nature of those really, really complex communities of thousands of members and what makes them tick, what makes them hard to change, resilient and robust, and then what makes them break down when they fall apart.
2: Okay, number two. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong?
3: <laughs> well, in the old days, when I was in my 20s and 30s, I said, <laughs> yeah. no, that's not right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think we all have gone through that phase.
3: I think so. What, and what uh, do you do
2: now? How do you handle it now?
3: Well, and I always thought that was the right way to do it, because as a scientist, we're supposed to be protectors of the facts, right? We're supposed to be promoting the facts. And so I always thought it was almost like a moral responsibility to let people know when they're wrong. But as I'm sure everybody can relate, that doesn't go over so well. (laughs) And so I have a series of phrases that I use. Um, Well, my understanding is, or... Another way to think about it is, and then I give them a lot of evidence for that way of understanding so that they become convinced that that way of understanding is one that they should certainly consider. Uh, Usually using questions, I think, is the best way to to reach people who have very entrenched wrong ideas.
2: That's very helpful. Very good. Very good thoughts, I think. Number three, what's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? (laughs)
3: Um, yeah, well, there's one that always stands out to me. Um, I was called by the one of the advisors to the president about uh, taking a position with President Obama as his science advisor. And when they kind of got to the next phase and started investigating me, they said, "Okay, so is there anything embarrassing you've ever done that could embarrass you or the president? And that's a pretty wide-open question, and I didn't know how to answer it. It
2: sounds like 99% of all people would disqualify themselves if, exactly. if it's embarrassment.
3: Exactly. And that's what I was thinking. It's like, oh, my God, I'm going to lose this job because, and I could think of about 100 examples of things I've done to embarrass myself. <laughs> that's great.
2: Did you try any of them out on them, or did you just finally turn off the faucet of embarrassment?
3: I did actually tell one of them because I had no idea what they considered to be embarrassing. You know, I, <laughs> yeah, I assumed, right. like, if I had embezzled funds or something, okay, that probably wouldn't look so good. If I hadn't paid by taxes, you know, I yeah, get it. Yeah,
1: yeah. But
3: there were, least, you know, more complex and subtle ones. And so I totally embarrassed myself by, by giving him one example. And he said, oh, too much information. And move, <laughs> let's move on. <laughs>
2: That's great. Okay, next question: How do you stop a compulsive talker?
3: I usually don't. Oh. Um, I let them go and go and go, and I find that most compulsive talkers eventually wear themselves out.
2: Yeah, but aren't you lying on the floor by then?
3: <laughs> um,
2: well, I'll try that next. I'll, I'll, that's a good. It's a good suggestion. Now here's one. How do you start up a real conversation with someone at a dinner party sitting next to you who you don't know?
3: Oh, I don't know. How do you do it?
2: Well, well, well you must have. What's faced your the answer? <laughs> I have my own peculiar thing, but did, have you have you not developed a, a, a way of doing it yet?
3: I usually ask something with a smile. That's. So Sort of, um, I try to be beguiling about it, but ask something that's slightly rude, like, like,
2: <laughs> like, are you actually as old as you look? <laughs>
3: yeah, not quite that bad, but like, what are you doing here? You know, uh, oh, or what's that's your good. connection? Yeah. Yeah, you know, just good. things yeah. that sound a little bit aggressive, but if you say it with a smile, then it's it's seen yeah. as as I think okay. But, I'm a little but more intrusive. What's your trick?
2: So I'm I'm a, I'm slightly more intrusive. I uh, I say, what what are you passionate about? Not, oh, that's not, good. Not necessarily what you do for a living. What are you passionate about? That's and, great. And then they they kind of open up sometimes. So okay, next one. What gives you confidence?
3: Uh, facts. Facts. That's I mm-hmm. never heard
2: that answer before. That's interesting. Why does a fact give you confidence?
3: Um, Because I feel like I know what I'm doing when I have a lot of information, and I feel shaky and unconfident when I'm devoid of information, facts, arguments, and ways to defend my position.
2: Great. Last question. What book has changed your life?
3: Well, two. I'm not sure why, but A Portrait of a Lady by... um, Henry James, uh, when I read it when I was 16, I immediately started rereading it, and I can't say exactly how it changed my life, but it made me certainly convinced that I wanted writing to be part of something, anything that I did. And then, actually, a book I just happen to have here called Black Earth, um, which is uh, by Timothy Snyder, and... Um, who is a historian at Yale and wrote a, a reinterpretation of Hitler and Mein Kampf, and interpreted and it interpreted it entirely in terms of Hitler's commitment to getting good soil, and that was the invasion of the Ukraine, and and he ties in many many other arguments, and it it revolutionized my thinking about soil. As much as I've loved soil for forty years, uh, it really changed. My thinking about the history of soil and the impact that it's had.
2: What a good example of of a, of a really interesting conversation where things get turned around and you see the world from an angle that you never expected to see it from. And that that's I'm so grateful for a really happy time with you just now. Thanks so much, Joe.
3: Well, thank you, Alan. It's always so good to see you.
2: Great, thanks. I hope I see you soon. Bye, bye.
3: Okay, great. Bye, bye.
2: This has been clear and vivid, at least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. Dr. Joe Handelsman is the director of the Wisconsin Institute for Discovery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's also widely recognized for her contributions to science education and diversity in science. In 2011, she was the recipient of the Presidential Award for Excellence in Science, Mathematics, and Engineering Mentoring from President Obama. And in 2012, the magazine Nature named her one of 10 people who mattered this year for her research on gender bias in science. For three years, she served as a science advisor to President Barack Obama as the Associate Director for Science at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. She's responsible for groundbreaking studies in microbial communication and for work in the field of metagenomics. You can find out more about Dr. Handelsman and her research by visiting the Handelsman Lab at the Wisconsin Institute for Discovery. The website is handelsmanlab.com www.discovery.wisc.edu. This episode was produced by Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Coston. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit AlanAlda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
0: When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice.
2: Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Lisa Kaltenegger. Lisa, you have such amazing things to say about the search for life on other planets. How long have you been doing that?
0: I think I was curious since I was a little child, and now I get to find whole new worlds out there and try to figure out, are we alone? If you find even a speckle of life somewhere, what that means is that life must be everywhere. And I think living in a world where you look up at the sky and you know that around all of these other stars, there are planets and there are some life forms, whatever shape they take, I think just puts me into even a deeper connection with that cosmos.
2: Lisa Kaltenegger, next time on Clear and Vivid.